three words. Words that shape and would shape and define a nation for now more than 233 years. And you know these words. If you've had any kind of civics class, whether in high school, junior high, college, or beyond, you know these three words. And the three words are simply this, we the people. I remember you've been to Washington, D.C. and had the privilege of going to the Smithsonian and seeing a copy uh, of, the, of the Constitution of the United States. And these first three words, we the people, as you know, are words from the preamble of the Constitution of the United States, which was presented tomorrow will be the 234th anniversary of it being presented to this fledgling nation of 13 colonies at that time. And se- September 28th, I'm sorry, it would be two days from today, September 28th of 1787, and it was ratified, as you know, nine months later on June 21st, 1788. Now, I don't know if they still do it today or not, but when I was in elementary school, we had to memorize the preamble. Any, anybody else had to do that? Memorize the preamble to the Constitution? Okay, I remember that. And we had to memorize the preamble to the Constitution, and the preamble basically gives the document's purpose statement. We the people, the United States, and then it gives, gives the reason for the Constitution uh, so that it can form a more perfect union, it can establish justice, it can ensure domestic tranquility, Uh, to provide for the common defense, to promote the general welfare, and to secure the blessings of liberty uh, to us and our posterity. And and those are the six six purpose statements for the Constitution. Uh, Those six things, this is why uh, it was been ordained and established, this Constitution for the United States of America. And while certainly for, hopefully for us as citizens of the United States, these are are, are powerful and, 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 and treasured words, Uh, Their significance pales in comparison to the words that we find in the latter part of, uh, 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 or in the first part of chapter, uh, uh, first part of verse 10, where it says, again, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once we were not, but now we are. We are the people of God. We, the people, are the people of God. So, who are the people of God? And what is the significance of this term for you and for me? Again, remember, as, as Peter is closing out this section here, uh, which is, is, is going to end uh, in, in, this, in these verses, uh, verse, verse 10 is where this section is going to end at, this first major section. And then the big section is going to begin in chapter 2 and verse 11. Peter is closing out this section so that they will understand their identity. Who are we as, as, as the people of God. Who, who are we? Again, these people are, are, are having to deal. Uh, they're in the midst of an identity crisis if their identity is placed in anything earthly because they've been ripped from their homes. They've been ripped from everything that they've known. They've been, they have been taken and, 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 and forced into exile into a different country. Uh, they are no longer together like they once were. They're not able to meet like they once were with the same people that they once were able to meet. And so they, Peter is trying to encourage them because he's going to talk to them about how we're to live out our lives, how we are to engage life based upon who we are. And, and so this closes this out. These last two verses closes out this sense of, of our identity, of, of who we are in Christ. And, and, and just like the previous verses, uh, we're, we're going to spend several weeks in these two verses. And you say, well, why? I mean, why, why are we... Ta- why are we I mean, like... It's like, you know, we're, 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 you know, 
taking this, this military march through knee-deep mud. You know, and it's just, it's, it, we're just kind of slogging along. Why, why are we doing this? Well, partly because these verses are key. Uh, one of the things that they're key is in the development of your eschatology. What you believe about the last things, a lot of these, these verses, verses 9 and 10, have a lot to say about that. And how one understands and interprets these verses are going to determine your belief regarding the relationship uh, between the nation of Israel and the church. Uh, has the church replaced Israel? Uh, is, is there still a future for ethnic Israel? Uh, how does, what about some of these things, these promises uh, that in the New Covenant, uh, uh, some of these promises that, that are made in the Old Testament that certainly the church has received the blessings of those and, and at least partially fulfilled uh, those things, how, how does that relate? So that's one of the things that we'll look at. Also, it determines your, your uh, belief regarding the promises made to Israel and their ultimate fulfillment. Are those, and that kind of it ties into the first one, is that ultimate fulfillment found, uh, the, these Old Testament prophecies, is the ultimate fulfillment found in the church? Uh, or is there a, a further, or is the church, uh, is it a partial fulfillment? That these promises have a partial fulfillment in the church and an ultimate fulfillment later on in the nation of Israel. And it will, help, it will also affect how you understand the, the millennium, which also shapes how you, live, how, how you live in this present world. And so these verses are, are, are very key to that. Now again, I, I, I think part of what Peter is doing here, I don't think Peter is taking these two verses to give us a treatise on eschatology, but though I certainly think that eschatology is important because we have to live our lives in accordance to the future. Uh, we, we, if, if we live our lives, if all we concentrate are on, on the circumstances of what is going on now, we will miss out on what God wants to do in our life. Uh, we need to live with an eye towards the future. We need to recognize that, that as, as I said to our Bible study class today, the choices that we make today have future consequences. They have future consequences. And so we're going we're to approach this text and right now, at least, you know, keep your fingers crossed. Right now, I think we'll be three weeks in, this, in these two verses. Uh, we're going to approach this text by first unpacking the chosen. How do verses 9 and 10 relate to a believer's identity? Uh, that, that's the first thing. And, and, and I think that, that's, 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 uh, that's the primary thing that, that Peter is talking about here in these two verses. How do these verses relate to... How do verses 9 and 10 relate to my identity? Because these terms that we read about here in verses 9 and 10 are terms that are used for the nation of Israel. Uh, and and, and that kind of brings us to the next week, which deals with the connection. How do verses 9 and 10 relate to the citations from the Hebrew Scriptures? Just like in the previous verses where Peter takes these, these passages of Scripture from, from Isaiah and from the Psalms, uh, he does the same thing in these two verses. We have passages from Exodus 19, we have we citations from Exodus 19, from Isaiah 43, and from Hosea chapters 1 and chapters 2. So, uh, what's he, he, again, this is all chocolate. Full. These last verses have been all chock full of, uh, of citations from the Hebrew Scriptures. So what's he doing here? Uh, why, why is he using these passages of Scripture? And what is, is it, what, what is these Old Testament passages of Scripture, what is the significance for the people that he's writing to, which also tells what the significance is for you and I? And so we need to understand that. Uh, and, then, and then finally, at the continuity. How do verses 9 and 10 shape our eschatology? 
How, 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 what, what's the, there, there, there's some continuity and there's discontinuity. There's some things where, yes, we can say we are like the nation of Israel in this way. And that, that's, that's the viewpoint I'm going to come from. Yes, there are some things here where certainly the prophecies have been fulfilled. But is there an ultimate fulfillment? Is there a fulfillment beyond? We're going to see when we get to that that there are some things that are an ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Uh, some of, these, some of the, this typological prophecy that we've been dealing with. An ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And we're going to get back to that. The idea of typological prophecy that we've been talking about over the last course of several weeks as we get and look at this particular topic from verses 9 and 10 as it relates to the continuity and discontinuity. So, our focus this morning is basically the people of God. What does it mean to be chosen? What does it mean, what's the idea that's being here? We are, present tense, we are the people of God. And the question that we're going to ask today is, who are the people of God, and what difference should it make in the way we conduct our lives? If my identity, uh, am I, what's it mean for me to be part of the people of God? Who are the people of God? Who can, who can leave this auditorium this morning and say, I am part, I am, and I know this is not, not, not good English, I am a people of God, okay? I am a people of God. I'm part of that. I understand that. And what significance does, does this make? So we're going to answer these questions. Answering these questions begins by identifying the contrast. Again, look at the text in verse 9. He says, but, but you are. This, these verse begin, this, this verse begins with the words, hemes day. And hemes is, is, is it's you in the plural. Uh, y'all. But y'all, okay, again, he's talking to to the corporate community here. But you are. So there's a contrast here. Because he talks about, he uses the the post-positive day uh, and, and giving us the contrast. There is a contrast here. There's something that the author is wanting us to look at and say, this is like this and that is like that. These two things are different or they're similar. Look at the similarities or look at their differences. In fact, when you look at this, the, the, this section of Scripture, there are five times, five times in verses 4 through 10 where Peter uses this word day and it's translated but. He's making contrast five times in verses 4 through 10. And these contrasts clearly reveal stark differences. It reveals differences between those who believe and those who don't. Between between those who claim to be followers of Christ and those who refuse Christ. And you you find them in verses 4, 7, 9, and 10, five times. Look at verse 4, where he says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God. Now here, here you have the contrast between men and God. Men who reject Christ and God, and in their view of who Christ is, in, in, in the view of, of the world, men uh, left it, humanity left to itself, humanity without the grace of God working in their life, sees Christ as being useless. He's rejected. He's of no value. But God looks at Jesus Christ, and He is precious. He is precious, as verse 4 talks about here. But in the light of God, chosen, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So you have that contrast there. Uh, you have the contrast that you find there in verse 7. Look at verse 7 in, in, in uh, 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 the second chapter. 
So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. And so here you have a contrast between those who believe and those who don't believe. Those who believe, uh, as the previous verse says in verse 6, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Those who believe will not be put to shame. They'll receive honor. But for those who don't, this stone has become a, a rock of offense. This stone has become a stumbling stone. Uh, this stone ha- has become something uh, that they have rejected, and yet it's, it's, it's become the corner. All these things, this idea of, of uh, this, con- this contrast here, verses 9 and 10, uh, is where we find the, fin- uh, the, the final three. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. And again, the, the sense of the idea here is that that, that but is contrasting the previous things. Uh, that those who, uh, those who refuse Christ, uh, that they, are, uh, they, they, uh, they, they become a stone of stumbling. They become a rock of offense. Christ has become that to him. And they stumble because they disobey the word. These are people who disobey the word. But he says, that's not you. That's not you. But you are. This is who you are. And then look at verses 10. There's two in verse 10 uh, where he talks about once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here we have the, the, these, the, these contrasts here, these stark contrasts, these glaring contrasts, these obvious contrasts, these contrasts that are as different as night and day that he talks about. And so... He begins there by, who are the people of God? Well, first of all, he starts off by, humanity basically is divided into two groups. We try to slice and dice people into this group and that group. And anytime you, you remember when the census, you know, this last census, and they're asking you all these questions, and they're slicing and dicing you. You know, what, what, what's the color of your skin? What's your ethnicity? Uh, how do you identify yourself? What do you want to identify yourself as? Uh, how much money do you make? Where do you live? What's your zip code? This, this, this. And basically what they're doing is slicing and dicing and trying to get an idea. Uh, to, and people are put in, set, in different categories. How God categorizes people is basically one, one, you're in one or two groups. You're either in the group that disobeys the word and rejects Christ, or you're in the group that makes you the people of God. That's it. That's it. That's the categories that he divides up. So first, if we're going to answer the question, who are the people of God, and what difference should that make in the way we conduct our lives, we have to identify the contrast, and we have. So with the contrast identified, we must now contrast the identities. We need to contrast the identities. Peter reminded his readers about their lives before belief in Christ. So we've got the two groups. So who are they? How how does God identify them? What are the markers in their life? And he reminds them what their life was, what the characteristics of their life was prior to salvation. Chapter 1 and verse 18, their life was empty. Look at chapter 1 and verse 18. He says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways or empty ways inherited from your forefathers. Our life, our life is empty. It's futile. Now, that doesn't mean that, that non-believers uh, may not have money. That doesn't mean that non-believers may not have any fun. That doesn't mean that non-believers uh, can't enjoy life. They can do all those things, but their life is futile because their life has no meaning beyond the grave. Once they get to the grave, their life, 
they, they experience the judgment of God. Their life isn't experiencing the purpose, the reason why God created us. They're enjoying the blessings that God has given in this created world, but they're not experiencing the blessings of living for the purpose that God set us on this earth. Why He created humanity in the first place. So their life is empty. It's futile. It's evil. Look at verse 1. So put away all malice. And, and certain translations have the word evil there. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Again, their, their lives were evil before that. Uh, the heart of man is evil continuously. And that doesn't mean we're as bad as we can be, but we're, con- we're constantly living lives to what is, what's to my advantage. How can, I be not, how can I come out of this situation on top? How can I make sure that I'm not the one that's getting used here? And so our lives, we, we, we focus and we concentrate our lives in such a way that we want to make sure that we come out on top. The, 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 it's also a, a life that is to be denounced. He says, put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The old life is to be denounced, it's to be put away. We're, we're, we're to set it behind us. We're to live a different kind of life. And he also said it was a life, it was a path that led to disastrous consequences. Again, in verse 8, uh, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They stumble. Their, their, their life is going to end up in, 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 in pain and in torment and in separation from God. Uh, a, a life where, where they will spend eternity in hell. And so, basically, you have this first, he says, as we go through these identities here, he says, this is what your life used to be. This is what life is like for those in that group. Now, again, that doesn't mean that they, as we said earlier, that doesn't mean they never have a good time. That doesn't mean they can't enjoy life. They certainly can enjoy the blessings of life, but they miss out on the reason and purpose for which they were created that will last beyond this life that will carry us over into eternity when we get glorified bodies and are able to worship and serve God without any taint of sin whatsoever. But Peter tells his readers, but now things are different. This is who you used to be. This is how your life used to be characterized. He says, but now things are different. You have a new identity. And that identity is found in the descriptors that are applied to them and to us. Again, in our text that we read today. Look at, look at back at verse 9. He says, but you are. Present tense. You are. He says, a chosen race. They're a new race that is identified with Christ. Whether race is defined by color or whether race is defined by ethnicity. And there's a lot of debate on how you define race. But regardless of how it's, how, it's, how it's defined here, you know as a child of God the race that is the most important race, the primary race, the race that I need to embrace more than anything else, I'm identified with Christ. I'm identified with Christ. That's, and, and, and that one you don't find on the, uh, uh, on the uh, uh, census sheet. A new race that's identified with Christ. A new race that is identified with Christ. He says not only that, he says you're a, you're a royal priesthood. And when we get to that phrase, uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll break it down a little bit. But, but what this, that royal priesthood, it can either be an adjective and a noun or it can be two nouns there. If it is two nouns there, then you have idea that, that, that we are, that you are a royal residence and a body of priests. And, and the idea is, is the privilege of access. 
You and I, if you're a child of God, if you're part of the people of God, you have the privilege of access. Now, you think about that. You and I just can't go wherever we want to go. Try, 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 you know, when you get, leave here today, hop on a plane, head to Washington, D.C., and try to go to the White House. And, even, and if you go and say, well, wait a second, I voted for the guy. I want to see him. They're going to say, I don't care who you voted for, you know. You don't get to see him. Because you, you and I don't have the privilege of access. Maybe you do, we just don't know about it yet, you know. But, but you and I don't have the privilege of access. We can't go to whatever, wherever we want to go. I mean, uh, again, the big thing in the, one of the big things in the news, what happened back on January 6th at, the, at our Capitol, you know, part, there was not the privilege of access. The privilege of access. We don't have the privilege of access. You know, in order for me to get, in order for me to get into the police station, I know what the code is to get into, into the, to, to the station. But in order for me to do that, they had to run a background, background check on me. I had to sign a waiver that anything I see in there stays with me. I can't go out and say, hey, you know what I saw in the police station today? I can't do that. I, have, I get the privilege of access because of a few things, and I know what the code is to get in. I know what the code is to get in. But when it comes to God, I have the privilege of access. You are a royal residence. You have the privilege of access to the Creator of the universe who is much greater than any political figure, who is much greater than any authority, whether it be city, county, state, or national, who is the greatest being who is and whoever will be, who has no beginning, who has no end, you have that kind of access. Access to the president? I got access to God. I got access to God. The one who, Scripture says that the king's heart's in the hand of the Lord and his rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he will. And every time I read that verse, I think about the times when my kids were small and we'd go out in the back and play in the sandbox and, and we'd make different things. And I always liked to make a, you know, try to make a river channel. And so I'd cut, you know, I'd use my finger and cut out and we'd pour water in there. Enough water to quit soaking, you know, in, in the sand and, and try to make a river through there. And then if we wanted to, to, to make the river go a different direction, we just went that sand like this and we made it go in a different direction. And every time I read that, the king's heart's in the hand of the Lord and his rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he will. That's the access we have. Not only do we have the access, but we have the privilege of representative ministry. Of representative ministry. You know, we have a representative government. Where basically, when, when my congressman votes, he's voting for me. Now, he may not always vote the way I'd like for him to vote, but the group of people that he represents, he got elected or she got elected, and they're in Congress, and they represent that group, and they're, they are going to vote in what is the best interest of that group because they represent that group. And we have the privilege of representative ministry. I get to represent the King of kings and Lord of lords. I get to represent the triune God at work, at home, in my neighborhood, when I'm driving, when I'm shopping, when I'm at a restaurant, when I'm engaging people. I get the opportunity of representative ministry. That's who you are. If you're, a, if, if you're a part of the people of God, 
That is your identity. Not only that, the text says we're a holy nation. Again, we'll unpack all these things later. We're, we're a holy nation. I mean, it speaks to our common origin. It speaks to our unity. The idea of nation speaks that we're, 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 we have a common origin. We're, we're part of the same nation. We, we have the same culture. We're, we, we, we have, we, there's a unity among us. And what that culture is, is described with the adjective, we're a holy nation. In that sense, we are a people called to moral quality. We are a people called to moral quality. Our lives are to, our, our lives are to be one of integrity. Our lives are to be one of transparency. Our, our life are, is to be one of, uh, of moral excellence. Where, where, we, where we represent part of how we... And all these, all these terms are tied together and are intertwined together. But as we, as we have the, the privilege of being uh, representatives uh, and having a representative ministry, part of that representative is that, is that we're people that can be trusted. People that are, are people of their word. People when they say something, you know it's going to get done. Uh, you know, and, and times we, certainly there's times we fail and times we drop the ball, but we're also people that take responsibility for our actions when we do that. We're called to a moral quality. But also it says in the text that we are a people, when, when you go down, he talks about that we are a people uh, of God's special possession. A special possession. Uh, and, and that's the idea when he says that, uh, and there in verse 8, he says, uh, verse 9, a people for his own possession. A people for his own possession. We are his special possession. And, and the idea being that we are, a people, we are a people destined for vindication. One day all the things where our world has mocked, and people have shamed us or shunned us, or, 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 or people have thought that we're crazy because we believe the scriptures, one day all that will be vindicated. Because we are God's special possession. But also, we are people who have received mercy. Once we were not a people, but now we are a people. Once we didn't, as verse 10 talks about, he says, uh, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are a people who have received mercy. And, and, and part of the thrust behind that is simply this, that we are destined for restoration. Not only are we destined for vindication, but we are destined for restoration. We one day are going to get to be what we long to be. People without sin. People that no longer bear the scars of, 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 of abuse, bear the scars of, of hatred, bear the scars of discrimination, bear the scars of, of being mistreated, bear the scars of being unloved, bear the scars of being uh, no longer bear the, the, scar, uh, the scars of being mean to others or bear the scars of, of being hateful to... All those things will be no longer a part of us and in the past. We'll be kind all the time, tenderhearted all the time, compassionate all the time, wise all the time. All those things. We, will be, we are a people who are destined for restoration. What God intended when He created the world. What God intended people to be when He created Adam and Eve and told them to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. We are going to be that one day. Because we received 
mercy. That is who the people of God are. That's their identity. But also, our text tells us, as we contrast the identities, also our text tells us that their identity is also bound to their purpose. Look at verse 9 again. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that, here's the purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. There's the purpose. So how is this purpose accomplished? Well, verse 9 tells us, first of all, it's through our verbal witness. We proclaim. We, we, we proclaim. We, we tell. When, when those opportunities come, we, we share with others what God has done in our life. We proclaim, uh, the, the, in some translations, that word excellency is virtues. We proclaim the virtues. Of, I mean, it's kind of, you remember maybe when you were dating and, and, and you got, you're getting ready to be introduced to the person you'd eventually marry, and maybe you asked, well, what are they like? You know, well, they're like this, and they're like this, and they're like this, and they're like this. And what are they? They're, they're sharing with you the virtues. They don't tell you, well, you know what? They pick their nose really bad, you know? And, and they just belch all the time. And they may go six or seven days without a shower, you know, without a bath. And so they tell them your, their virtues, the things that are good about them. In the same way with that, we get the opportunity, because since there's nothing bad with God, we get the opportunity of sharing with others the virtues, the excellencies of who, of who God is. But, but as we look within the context of what's going on here, we see other things that are our purpose as well. Not only our verbal witness, but our worship and service. Look at chapter 2 and, and verse 5. He says, you, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Again, here, remember, here's this, there's this identification as a holy priesthood. We just read earlier that we were, uh, the fact, a, a, a royal priesthood. He says here we're a holy priesthood, and here's the purpose, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our worship and our service. Our identity is bound up in the fact that we are to proclaim the excellencies of who God is. We are to worship and serve in a way that is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then finally, our lifestyle. When we get look, look at chapter 2 and verse 11. After all this identity, he talks about all that. He, he helps them to, uh, to, for them to nail down who they are. They are not victims. Yes, they've been mistreated. Yes, they have been persecuted. Yes, they have lost their homes. Yes, they have lost their jobs. Yes, they're no longer to me. They, they, their church has been scattered. They're not able to meet with the people. He says, but you're not to see yourselves. Yes, all these things have happened. These things aren't good. These things are hurtful. These things need to be worked through. But that is not the sum of your identity. Your identity is not bound up in earthly markers. Your identity is bound up in who you are as the people of God. That's where your identity rests. And then after all of that, as he begins this next major section, which goes from chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 4, almost all the way to the end of the book, chapter 4 and verse 11, he starts this way, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles 
He, again, he goes back to the same descriptors. He uses their earthly descriptors back in chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. He says, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, you're still in this world. You're still experiencing the things that you're experiencing, the hardships that you're experiencing, the difficulties that you're experiencing, the hurt that you're experiencing. But understand you're doing all of that as a part of the people of God. It's happening to you, but it's not your identity. It's going on in your life, but it's not your identity. But he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. From then on, he's going to talk to them about their lifestyle. Their lifestyle. My purpose, uh, uh, my identity is bound to a purpose as well. And that purpose is to Verbally proclaim the excellencies of God to worship and to serve God in a way that's acceptable to Him through Jesus Christ. And also, part of my purpose is how I live my life. We are to live, as we're going to find out in this big section, we are to live rightly in all our relationships. He's going to talk about the home, He's going to talk about the church, He's going to talk about the culture. I'm to live rightly. I'm to live rightly in, 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 in my relationship with, with my family. I'm to live rightly in my relationship to the people that I worship with. I'm to live rightly in the culture that I am to engage. And as we come to this section, Peter's going to give two major principles of engagement with the culture. Two major principles, which is just so... I mean, it's like, it's like he... he it's like we just ripped this out of today's newspaper. I mean, I know we don't read newspapers anymore unless you're over 60. But, but anyhow, you know, but, but two things. The first thing is this. Allegiance to God in Christ does not exempt one from submitting to pagan authority. Allegiance to God in Christ does not exempt one from submitting to pagan authority. Let's say they decide to make, in order to get on an airplane, you've got to get vaccinated. Okay. Now, I'm not vaccinated. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. You know, I don't think it's the mark of the beast. You know, I don't think anything like that. But I've still got the antibodies. So if i still got the antibodies, why do I need the vaccine? Now, you can have that argument with me after church and you know what, I'll just shake my head and I'll do this and I'll say, God bless you, we're just going to disagree on that. And, you know, hopefully we can move on. But I'm not, I'm not going to do it. But if I choose not to do that and they say, listen, in order for me to get on a plane, I've got to do that. And I start walking to the airport and I hand them the ticket that I buy and they say, oh, you're not vaccinated. I can't say, well, wait a second, I believe God. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. You've got to let me on this plane. No, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. I just better get used to driving everywhere or choose to get vaccinated. One of the two. One of the two. I can't use my relationship with God as an excuse for me to be able to violate the law unless the law is saying something that goes contrary to what the Scriptures have to say. 
if the law says you can't worship God, we're going to have an issue there. So we're talking about this. I forget who I was talking with about this the other day, but when I went to a certain country, I went to a certain country, and I did things that were illegal there. I could have got arrested there. I could have gotten kicked out or maybe even imprisoned when I went to that country. But I knew that going in. I knew that going in. And I knew I was willing to take that risk because they were violating the laws of God when they say you can't teach the Word of God. What do you mean I can't teach the Word of God? Teach the Word of God. And so that's the first thing. When we engage our culture, we we don't need... If we're going to engage our culture rightly, then we've got to recognize that allegiance to God in Christ does not exempt me from submitting to pagan authority. I'm still required to do so because that authority comes from God. That authority comes from God. Secondly, is identity as God's people must be maintained. Identity as God's people must be maintained even if it requires unjust suffering without retaliation. I'm a fan of the Constitution. I love the Constitution. I'm grateful that I live in the United States of America. I love my country. Prior to going into, prior to surrendering to ministry, I was, my, my goal was to go to the Air Force Academy. I submitted. I got my nomination from my, my senator at that time, which was John Glenn. And I made it to the very last step to get in before I realized God was calling me to preach. And, and I, I withdrew my name. I wanted to serve my country. I love my country. But my most important citizenship is not the one I obtained when I was born in Dayton, Ohio. My important citizenship is my kingdom citizenship. My kingdom citizenship. And I better make sure that my identity as a kingdom citizen of God, that identity must be maintained at all costs. Even, even if it requires the fact that I'm going to be treated unjustly, I'm going to experience suffering, and I can't retaliate. I can't retaliate. If if somebody tries to break into my house to harm my wife, I'm going to shoot. I'm going to shoot. And even though I got one eye, I can hit the target, okay? As long as I don't close this eye. If I close if I close if I, if I'm really unhappy with Lisa, you know, and you know, I will close the left eye, you know, cuz I'm not going to see anything. But but since I do love my wife and I do care for her, and even if I was unhappy, I'd still want to protect her, you know, I'll close the right eye because it's I I can close I can't see anything out of that eye anyways. I'm going to shoot. But if they're going to come in the door because I'm having a home Bible study, I'm not going to shoot. I'm not going to shoot. One's different from the other. I, I've been, I've been, I've been, I have a responsibility to protect my family. And I'm going to do that. But when it comes to whether or not I can teach a Bible study in my home, the government says you can't do that, and they come knocking at the door. They take me. I'll, I'll violate. I'll violate that law. But also doing so that I recognize it, that by violating that law, I could possibly go to jail, and I'm not going to complain when I do. 
I'm going to think the law is unjust. I'm going to think the law is unfair. But my kingdom citizenship, citizenship is much more important than whether or not they haul me off to jail. Whether or not they do that or not. Those are the two things. How we live rightly in our culture. How we live rightly in engaging our culture. And the contrast of identities is glaring between these two groups of people. So how does a person, how does a person move from one group to the other? And how we do that is simply by identification. As you recall, in verses 6 through 8, Peter cites three passages from the Hebrew Scriptures. Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm 118, 22, Isaiah 8, 14. And these have been referred to as the stone passages, okay? Because when you look at verses 6 through 8, again, you see, For behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder... Again, he's quoting again, so he used, and there's stone in there. From the first passage that he quotes, there's stone. From the second passage that he quotes, there's stone. From the third passage that he quotes in verse 8, a stone. So these are the stone passages. It's not Sly and the Family Stone, which, by the way, I had their 8-track and I love playing it. But, I mean, it's not Sly, but, but these are the stone passages, okay? The stone passages. When you get to verses 9 and 10... You, you have uh, uh, what is called the people passages uh, because you find the word laos or people found once in verse 9 and you find it twice in verse 10. Look at verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All these phrases that I've just read are phrases that come out of, of, of Hebrew, uh, uh, Hebrew passages, either Exodus 19 uh, that, that we talked about earlier, or, or the Isaiah passages, they, they all come out of there. So he talks about people. Look at verse, uh, look at verse uh, 10. He says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. He's, verse 10, he quotes from Hosea 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. So in these passages that he uses, you, they're sometimes referred to as the people passages. So what's going on here? Well, what connects the stone passages with the people passages is the word eklekton, which is found in verse 6 and verse 9, and it's either translated elect or chosen. Look at verse 6. He says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. The stone passages, this stone, whether this stone is seen as a precious cornerstone or whether the stone becomes uh, the ones that the when this stone is the one that the builders have rejected or when this stone becomes a stumbling stone and a rock of offense to those who reject him this stone is still a chosen stone it's a chosen stone look at verse 9 he says but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood and all these terms come together and so what you have tying these things together is the word chosen. You say, well, what, let, let's, let's, let's get all the brush out of the way. And what are you saying here? The honor and election of believers is grounded in their identification with Messiah Jesus Christ. Why are we chosen and precious in God's sight? We are chosen and precious in God's sight because we are identified with the one who is chosen and precious, the cornerstone. In other words, 
You're not special to God because you're somebody special. You're special to God because you're identified with the one who's special, Jesus Christ. I'm special to God because I'm I'm identified with the one who is special, Jesus Christ. In fact, we see this throughout the book. We won't take the time to read the verses, but you can write them down and read them later. In in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we are identified with Christ's life and resurrection. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1, we're identified with Christ's glorification. In verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1, we are identified with the blood of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we, our, worship is ident- we, our worship is acceptable. Our worship and service in, to God is acceptable because it's through Jesus Christ, because of our identification with Jesus Christ. So our life and resurrection, our glorification, the fact that we've been redeemed through the blood of Christ, we're identified with the blood of Christ, and we're, we, our worship to God will be acceptable this morning, because not because we're just great worshipers, but because we do that worship through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're identified with Him. You say, well, how can one be identified with Christ? Chapter 2, verses 6 and 8 tells us. It says he's laying, that, uh, uh, laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. He goes on and he talks about that. How does one become identified with Christ? Through belief. What's belief? Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. I recognize that I can't do anything to make myself acceptable to God. I'm broken. Not only am I I'm broken, I'm in rebellion against God. I was born that way. I mean, I watch my grandchildren. I'm not, I watch my youngest grandchildren when he tells his mama, I want it now. You know what that's saying? I'm God and you need to serve me. I mean, kids are great until they start talking, you know. And, and, they, you know, and then they start, you know, I want it now. That's not what I want to do. You know? And we get mad, and sometimes we respond, we respond in a bad way instead of a good way because when they do that, we're going to say, I'm bigger than you, and I can make you do what I want you to do because, listen, you think you're God? I'm really God. <laughs> instead of pointing them to God because their heart is being revealed and my heart is being revealed. And both of us need to recognize we both need to submit to God in this situation and do what the right thing is, which may mean they get their their bottom tanned, you know? But that is what's going on in the heart of people. And we recognize that, that we have no hope and that our sins have separated us from God. We have a sin problem. Our problem is not that we need to be reformed, our problem is we need to be redeemed. We have a sin problem. And when we come to Christ in repentance and, 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 and ask Christ to forgive us of our sins and, and recognize that we can't do anything and we put our faith and trust in who Christ is and what He's done, we experience eternal life. We then we are born again into the family of God and we become the people of God. The people of God. That's how it occurs. So, going all the way back to where we started this message, who are the people of God? The text tells us those chosen by God. You say, how can a person know if they're chosen? If you're thinking that, that's the wrong focus. You know, and again, it may be just because I'm I'm a simpleton 
I'm not, I'm not the, the sharpest theological knife in the drawer. I understand that. But when I read about election, it's not about that God is trying to get us to decide, well, who's elect and who's not elect, in my opinion. And I may get really raked over the coals by this by God when I stand before him. I don't know. Every time I read about election, it's to encourage the believer. It's to help the believer. It's to, it's to humble the believer. It's to help them to see, listen, when I get into heaven, it's not because I'm great shakes. It's because I have a God who's chosen to be merciful and gracious to me, and I need to be in awe and wonder and serve Him out of gratitude that that kind of being, that kind of holy, righteous, just person would love me and redeem me. And, and, and it's, in my mind, it's not so much about, about soteriology. It's, it's, it's about more like sanctification. That, that, that truth should encourage me as a believer. That truth should humble me as a believer. If, if my focus is, well, how can I know whether or not I'm chosen? That's the wrong focus. The focus, if I don't know Christ, is how do I believe? Because all this, let me tell you what. Every person that's chosen believes. They do. And my focus, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, your, your, your charge is not to think here and say, well, am I chosen, am I not chosen? Oh, that's not, what, that's not what those scriptures are there for. For you to mull around in your mind whether you're chosen or not. Those scriptures are to encourage the believer, to humble the believer, to help them to see that, that they've got nothing to boast, nothing to brag about. If you don't know Christ, what you're charged to do is believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He that cometh unto me, I will no wise cast out. Come and take of the waters of life freely. Just come, come, come to Christ. That's the message we have to bring to the world. That's the thing we proclaim to others. Come to Christ. Put your trust in Him. And once you do, then you recognize, I've got nothing to boast and brag about. And so I'm going to serve God out of gratitude for what He's done for me because I can never pay Him back for what He's done for me. What difference should this truth make? Well, it should make a difference in how you see yourself. Your identity. You, the primary marker of your identity is not from what part of the country you come from, what your ethnicity is, what the color of your skin is, what, what your educational background is, how much you got in the bank, what your primary mark of identity is, is that I'm a child of God through Jesus Christ. And if you're a child of God through Jesus Christ, you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that relationship lasts longer than any other relationship on this earth. brothers or sisters in Christ. You're identified with Christ. And because you're identified with Christ, you have the privilege of access. You have the privilege of representative ministry. You are called to moral quality. You have a common origin in unity. You are people destined for vindication. You are people destined for, uh, for, for, for restoration. You are people who are recipients of God's mercy. And you are people who have a divine purpose. What's that purpose? That purpose is for you and I to live out our identity. 
That, that, again, that's how does this change my life? I need to understand who I am, and then I need to live out my identity. I need to live my life based upon my identity. I live like I am somebody who has access to God, who's identified with Christ, who has a representative ministry, who has been called to a moral quality of life, who has a common origin and a common unity, a person who is destined for vindication, a person who is destined for restoration. I am to live my life in that manner as I engage my culture, as I engage my wife, as I engage my parents, as I engage my siblings, as I engage my, my, my children, as I engage my grandchildren, as I engage my neighbors, as I engage my culture, I'm to live out of that identity of who I am, and I do so by proclaiming His virtues, worship and serving Him, and living rightly in all my relationships. And thank God, by His Spirit, He makes that possible in every life of every believer. Glory be to God. Praise Him this morning. Praise Him as we have the privilege and opportunity of living a life as the people, we the people of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this day and this time, and thank you, Father, for these truths. Encourage us in your word today. Challenge us. Help us, Father, to live out our identity, to work out our own salvation, as Paul put it, with fear and trembling, working out who we are. We need your help. We need your grace. We need your power. We need your wisdom. We need your mercy. We need your forgiveness. We need your encouragement. We need your comfort. We need your strength. We need your courage. Lord, it can't be done without you. As we again sang today, all our sufficiency is in you. It's in you. Bless and encourage your people today. If there's somebody here that doesn't know Christ, show them their need. They have no hope if they're trusting in their own good works. They have no hope if they're trusting in the fact that they walked an aisle. They have no hope just by saying a prayer. The Spirit of God must be convicting their heart and they're drawn to you by the Spirit of God and they recognize their need and they come to you in repentance and faith. Father, I pray that you'd help us to anchor our security in you and in your work and what you've done and not what we've done. So we pray your blessings, Father, now upon this time and Each of us here today, Lord, may you apply your word to our lives. May we submit freely and gladly to the working and the wooing of the Holy Spirit. For we pray these things in Christ's name. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, as you know, we don't have an altar call. But we do invite you to go before God today and yield to him. Find your encouragement in him, your comfort in him. Repent. You need to repent. Whatever it is that you need before the Lord today, we want to give you that opportunity as we go to the Lord in a time of silence. If you don't know Christ, cry out to Him right now. If you're not sure exactly, I'm not, I still don't quite understand it. We've got people that will take the time after the services to show you.
to help you to understand, to pray with you, and to walk with you until you reach to that place where you, where you do understand and you come to faith in Christ. So let's go to the Lord in a time of silence.